It's podcasting time. My name is Jonathan Isaacson, and this is Just Another Jerk, Dispatches from Japan, the podcast where I ramble on about things with some connection to Japan, usually. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you cast your pods. So today's a bit of a different episode, a little special. I have a guest today. Um, her name is Colleen Seki. She's a former colleague of mine, and she's a friend. Hello. And we're going to share a story with her today. So, Colleen, I've invited you on today, and you have no idea what we're going to talk about, do you? Absolutely no idea. Perfect. So this will all be a big surprise to you, as well as to our listeners. Today, I'm coming to you with another edition of Everything You Never Wanted to Know About Japanese History. That's the title we're going to go with, at least until something better comes along. And today, we're not talking about mines. I realized the first uh, two editions of E-Y-N-W-T-K-A-J-H were all about mines. Coal in Yubari and gold and silver in Eniwa. And I certainly could talk more about various mines and mining-adjacent stories. I'm not really sure why, but mines fascinate me. Something about going that far down into the earth, the danger, the absolute alien nature of that world compared to what things are like above ground. I know if people who worked in a mine were to hear me talking like this, they'd probably scoff at me and maybe try to disabuse me of these silly notions. I'm not trying to romanticize mining, but it fascinates me. But today's edition of E-Y-N-W-T-K-A-J-H is not about mining in any way, shape, or form. Instead, I'm coming at you with another disaster story. Yay! We had the Yubari Shintanko disaster a few episodes back, and now we have a mountaineering disaster. In fact, in terms of number of deaths in a single incident, today's story is the worst mountaineering disaster in modern history. So where do you think the most deadly mountain climbing accident ever occurred? Where would you probably guess? I think I would definitely choose something in Nepal with like the Himalayans somewhere. Not necessarily Everest, but somewhere in the Himalayans. That would be a good guess, but it would be an incorrect guess. Most people, when they think mountain climbing accidents and disasters, probably think, as you did, of the Himalayas or maybe even the Alps especially when you go back to the 1800s or early 1900s in the Alps. And you certainly wouldn't be wrong in thinking of these places. There have been many climbers lost in the Himalayas and the Alps. Or maybe you know about the Dyatlov Pass incident from 1959 in the Ural Mountains in Russia. If you don't, check out the Stuff You Should Know podcast episode from a couple of years ago. That one is, that, that, that uh, incident, the Dyatlov Pass incident, is surrounded by a lot of mystery aliens and space and terrorist plots from various governments right is that the one that the skiers were on the mountain and we have no idea how they died and so yeah that was either like a ski or mountain climbing club or something like that from a russian university and uh yeah they were found scattered all over the place i think it was like eight or nine young people (laughs) young people Ooh, i sound old so, yeah, that's the Dyatlov Pass incident, which took place in the Urals, another good guess for mountain climbing disasters. However, the worst mountaineering disaster of modern times occurred in Japan in the early 1900s, as Japan was preparing for possible war with Russia. So, let's hop into the Wayback Machine and go to the winter of 1901-1902 in Aomori, northern Japan. And what do you know about Aomori? Let's see. Uh, Shimokita looks like a giant axe, uh, famous for apples, onsen, lots of snow. I think the second tallest Buddha in Japan is maybe up there. Okay, you hit on an important factor in today's story. Lots of snow. (laughs) Yes. Do you know Mount Hakoda? I don't. Okay, so you know Lake Tawada, right? Yes. Okay. So yeah, it, it's a lake between Akita and Aomori, kind of up in the eastern, uh, northeastern corner of Akita, south central part of Aomori. And just north of that is a mountain range called the Hakoda Mountains. And that's where our t- story takes place. 
But first, let's talk about what was happening in Japan in the late 1800s, early 1900s. The story really begins a few years earlier with the Sino-Japanese War, the first Sino-Japanese War, I should say, of 1894-1895. That was the war that shifted the power balance in East Asia. For centuries, China had been the dominant power in the region, but following the Meiji Restoration and Modernization of Japan in the mid to late 1800s, Japan defeated the Qing Dynasty in a war over influence in Korea, among other things. The primary cause was influence in Korea. Two things became apparent in that war. The biggest concern to arise from that conflict was that Japan and Russia were now on a probable collision course over influence in China. There's plenty of information out there about the Russo-Japanese War and its causes, so I won't go into detail, but just know that by 1901, Japan was already preparing for possible war with Russia. One other offshoot of the war with the Qing Dynasty in China was that Japan realized the importance of preparedness for extreme cold weather fighting. Now, most people don't realize it, but the northern parts of East Asia can get really cold in the winter. You're well aware of that, too, having lived in northern Japan. Yep, yep. And a lot of people don't think of that when they think of East Asia. They don't really think of it as being a cold place, but parts of it are really really cold, including places in Japan, of course, northern China, parts of Korea, which is to say nothing of the Russian Far East. So, as war with Russia started to seem more and more likely, the Japanese Imperial Army began exercises to prepare for fighting in the cold and the snow. One of the chief concerns was being able to transport troops and supplies in northern Japan in case Russian troops invaded and cut off the train lines, which ran, and still do today, mostly along the coast, right? There's not as many mountains right up to the edge of the coast, so you don't have to make as many tunnels. Now, I highly recommend pulling up a map of Japan to help you understand this story. So first, find Aomori. Have you been to Aomori? I'm sure you have. Yes, so I've done a couple road trips around Shimakita, and then, of course, going through Aomori from Akita. Nice place. Very countryside. Aomori, as you can see on your map, is not that far from the Russian Far East. Vladivostok is a fairly short way across the Sea of Japan. Aomori is one of the major cities in northern Japan. I mean, it's not major, major. It's not like Sapporo or Sendai today but it still has a couple hundred thousand people. At the time of the story, though, Aomori was much larger than Sapporo. Sapporo wasn't even Hokkaido's largest city at the time. That was Hakodate, which is just across the Tsugaru Strait from Aomori. Mount Hakodate, in Hakodate appropriately enough, had a series of military batteries and a small fort built at its peak around this time. So this area was seen as being very militarily important for Japan, especially with the looming possibility of war with Russia. Now, of particular concern for our story today was the route between Aomori City to Hachinohe. Now, do you know Hachinohe at all? Yes, actually. Uh, Yeah, it's on the east coast, right? Right, right. It's on the uh, Pacific coast of Aomori. And those, Aomori Hachinohe, those are the two biggest cities in Aomori Prefecture. Uh, It was the train line between these two cities that the commanders of the Aomori City Army Base were concerned about. If the Russians disrupted train services between Aomori and Hachinohe in wintertime, would the Japanese Imperial Army be able to move between these two important cities? So a plan was made to attempt a partial winter crossing of the Hakoda Mountains, a fairly low but sprawling mountain range at the center of Aomori Prefecture. The trip through these mountains would more or less follow what is today Prefectural Highway 40, So if you can find that on a map, Highway 40, going through the mountains between Aomori and just outside of Hachinohe. And overall, that trip was about 90 kilometers. The proposed plan for this partial crossing was to travel roughly 20 kilometers the first day and make camp at Tashiro Onsen. The plan was to return to the Aomori base the next day, so it's a two-day trip, out and back. Now, the Hakoda mountain range is, as many mountains in Japan are, volcanic in nature. And as such, there are many natural hot springs, known in Japanese as onsen. In many cases, 
There are hotels and inns built around these hot springs. Even today, some of Japan's most famous onsen are in the Hakoda Mountains. Do you know about any onsens in Aomori by any chance? I know there's uh, one that's acid and then maybe one that's the snowiest in Japan. Yes, that snowiest one is a place uh, called Tsukayu Onsen. It is one of the snowiest places in the country, regularly recording well over five meters of accumulated snow at peak depth. Overall, snowfall is much, much greater. This is just on the ground at one time, five meters. So Tashiro Onsen was on the other side of the mountain from Tsukayu. And today, almost nothing remains of Tashiro Onsen. The photos I have seen show a falling down wooden building, but the bath still appears to be there. So if you are willing to hike into the deepish woods, you can still have a dip in the Tashiro Onsen, in the hot spring bath. But this was to be the first day's campsite for the training mission through the Hakoda Mountains in early 1902. To test the feasibility of this 20-kilometer day, a team comprising of about 160 men and one sled carried out a training mission on the 18th of January 1902, traveling from the Aomori base to Kotoge Pass and back, a round trip of about 18 kilometers, so nearly the distance from the Aomori base to Tashiro Onsen. Aided by fair skies, the men successfully completed the training mission in a day, leading the commanders to believe that traveling to Tashiro Onsen from Aomori in one day was possible. However, the men at the Aomori base were apparently unaware that an approximately a month earlier, a smaller contingent from another military base in the prefecture had already planned to carry out a similar mission. Plans were announced sometime around December 20th, 1901, approximately a month before they planned to start. And on January 20th, 1902, a group of 38 men, 37 were soldiers and one newspaper reporter. Okay. Well, this, and that's kind of the interesting thing here, is that the Hirosaki one was reported in the newspapers. And they had one reporter, one reporter actually went with the soldiers. And so they reported on it, sending out, well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think they were actually sending messages out during the mission because, I mean, this is 1902 and they're out in the middle of the mountains. So it would be hard to send messages out. But um, I think once they got back on it, they were reporting more on it. But yeah, that, that was reported, um, the one with the uh, with the Hirosaki mission. That's just interesting that a group that's like a third of the size has a reporter, but then like 160 something people, you said it's just soldiers. Well, that, that first one, what the, the 160, that was just, it was kind of a test. They only went about eight, nine kilometers out of Almori and back. Oh, okay. So it was kind of like a test run to see if a longer mission was possible. But the Hirosaki one, and here, let me get you a little more information here. So the Hirosaki men left from the Hirosaki army base. Now, Hirosaki is the third major city in Almori prefecture, and it's located to the southwest of Almori city. So look at your map again. The men from Hirosaki were carrying out a training mission to test clothing and methods for best traveling through snowy mountains. Their training route would take them over 200 kilometers. So again, get your map out. 200 kilometers traveling counterclockwise or anticlockwise if you're British or Australian or whatever. So counterclockwise from Hirosaki down towards Lake Tawada, up through the Hakoda Mountains, along what is today Prefectural Highway 40, stopping at Tashiro Onsen, the same hot springs where the men from Aomori were later planning to travel. And from there, on back to Aomori City and back to Hirosaki, a 224-kilometer loop, covering the same ground the Aomori group was planning to travel, albeit in the opposite direction. Now, the regiment from Hirosaki planned to cover this total distance in 12 days, which averages out to about 19 kilometers a day. So about the same. The Hirosaki expedition stopped in villages and towns along the way, asking citizens to aid in securing provisions and supplies and for their knowledge. The army men also asked woodcutters and hunters in the area for information about the winter in the mountains. To help ward off frostbite and other ill effects of the cold, the soldiers wore three layers of socks. And this was to help wick away the moisture from their sweat to avoid getting frostbite on their feet. 
They also smeared their feet with crushed chili peppers, uh, I guess also to ward off uh, frostbite. Are chili peppers native to Japan? I don't know that they are, but certainly if not, they would have been imported at some point from. I mean, because obviously in Korea, they're, they're a big thing. Um, so at some point they must have gotten to Japan and uh, apparently if you crush them into like a, like a powder or make a salve out of them, you can spread them on your feet and they help keep your feet w- warm. I mean, warmer, I guess I should say. So to help prevent frostbite, they learn to wrap parts of their body in oil paper to help prevent frostbite as well. To help prevent any members of the expedition from getting lost in the snowy mountains, the men were all attached to a rope and moving in a line. Essentially, the Hirosaki men were conducting a fact-finding mission combined with a test of best practices for conducting maneuvers in a snowy mountain setting. In the process, they showed that what the Aomori regiment was planning to do was possible, rendering the Aomori mission somewhat redundant. And to top it off, the Hirosaki training mission was reported in the papers, meaning that it was entirely possible that someone from the Aomori military post could have been aware of it, though there is no indication of this. Maybe someone didn't read the newspaper, I don't know. It doesn't say one way or the other if these Aomori men knew about the Hirosaki mission. Regardless of whether or not they were aware of of the Hirosaki men and their mission, 210 men from the Aomori 5th Infantry Regiment set off on a training mission with 14 large sleds, each weighing over 80 kilograms and requiring at least four men to pull at one time. Now, the men in the Aomori unit were mostly from northern Japan, Iwate, Miyagi, nearby prefectures to Aomori, that were also cold places, though most of the men in the unit were from farming communities, not places that had experienced the types of cold and snow and the types of snow seen on the Hakoda Mountains. Along the way, some of the local villagers suggested that they postpone the exercises, or at the very least, allow some of the locals to act as guides in the harsh Hakoda winter. However, these offers were declined for some reason, and members of the 5th Regiment began their march towards Tashiro Onsen at 6.55 in the morning of the 23rd of January, 1902, with just their maps and their compasses. Wait, sorry, sorry, quick question. And Why did they decline the guides? Why did they start off with no guides? That's a very good question, and I have not been able to find a good answer to that. So they were offered help, but they started with no guides. For for some reason, they just, I mean, they figured it'd be an easy, just like out and back trip. Maybe they'd been there before, maybe not in the snow, but they'd already been there. I mean, I don't know why. I couldn't find any definite reasons as to why they refused the help, but they did. Um, okay. So they set off, like I say, on the morning of the 23rd with just their maps and their compasses. No guides. The first nine kilometers up to Kotoge Pass, the location of that test march they did a few week, a few days prior, I should say, those first kilometers saw the men make good progress. But by the time they had reached the pass, the men pulling the sleds were slow in reaching the checkpoint. Not surprising. These are very, very large, very heavy sleds, 80 kilograms each. So by the time they reached this first checkpoint, the sleds were already very far behind, so the group took an extended rest for lunch. During the break, the weather took a sudden turn for the worse. The commissioned officers in the group met and considered a return to the base. However, the junior officers and many of the lower-ranking men disagreed and wanted to push on. After pushing through the worsening conditions for another six kilometers, the sled teams were falling further and further behind, nearly two hours behind at this point, despite the fairly short distance. I'm also guessing there probably weren't, like, of course, no paved roads, but a lot of just, like, hiking in a forest with, like, minimal trailage, right? Yeah, well, and remember, too, that this is January, so any trails or anything would have been completely covered in the snow at this point. So if it's still currently snowing, the trails are very likely very difficult to find. And so, yeah, absolutely, there's no road here as we know it now, just like a path through the mountains. So, yeah, the break, um, their their long break, uh, they set out again, the weather turns worse, and the sleds fall further and further behind. And at this point... The commanding officer, a man named Kanari Bunkichi, sent 88 men 
back to help the sled teams, while at the same time he sent 15 men on a scouting party ahead to try to find Tashiro Onsen. At around 5 p.m., the sleds were abandoned. They were just too heavy and too much snow. And the men carried all the goods that had been in the sleds on their backs. This is 1.2 tons of supply. I mean, it's spread out a bunch among a lot of soldiers, but still, 1.2 tons of supplies that now have to be carried on backs. And some poor soul was forced to carry the copper cooking cauldrons. Now, around the same time, the advanced scouting party was unable to find the way to Tashiro and had become completely lost, and only regrouped with the main party by accident. It was at this point that the, the commanders gave up the goal of trying to find Tashiro Onsen for the day and began searching for a site to set up a bivouac. Set, set up a bivouac? So a, a bivouac is kind of a uh, temporary camp, a mountain camp. It's often like military uses it. Oh, okay, okay. So they set up a bivouac, a camp for the night. At around 8.15 p.m., five trenches were finally dug in the snow, each measuring about 10 square meters with no covering of any sort to help keep the men's body heat inside the trenches. By 9 p.m., the trailing sled teams, minus their sleds, plus those 88 men who had gone back to help, finally reached the bivouac site. And the men crowded into the trenches, more than 40 men in each trench. At this point, the food and the equipment for making fires were distributed amongst the trenches, and only one small fire was to be built in each trench, so the men would have to take turns to warm themselves. However, the fires took nearly one hour to get started. And once the fires were started, food preparations could begin. Unfortunately, dig as much as they could. Even at a depth of nearly two and a half meters, the men could not find solid ground to put their fires on. So they were forced to place the fires and the cooking pots on top of snow. Which obviously is not a great idea, as snow will, well, fire will melt snow. And that made cooking extremely difficult, as the pots tipped as the snow melted unevenly under the fires. This happened repeatedly over and over again. By 1 a.m. on the 24th, food preparation was finally complete, and the soldiers were able to eat their rations. Although the warm sake they were given apparently smelled rancid, and they could not drink that to help warm up. So... Being cramped 40 men into these 10-meter square uh, trenches meant there was no room to sit, let alone lie down. Soldiers leaned against the walls of the trenches, tried to get a few minutes of sleep as best they could. However, with the temperatures dipping down to minus 20 degrees Celsius, falling asleep increased the risk of frostbite or even worse. The men turned to singing, stamping their feet, and rubbing their hands together to try to stay awake and as warm as they possibly could. So that ended day one. Sounds like a great time, huh? I mean, they did have the good luck of catching up with the party, but I'm I'm predicting that that was probably one of the few strokes of good luck in this story. Yeah, until, uh, well, there aren't a lot of strokes of luck. I mean, it's basically just a series of bad luck for the next. Well, you, you'll see how long it goes on. Okay, but day one, all day right. Day one. The plan for day two was to depart camp at 5 a.m., but by 2 a.m., the commanding officer and his immediate subordinates conferred again and made the decision to return to base in Aomori City at that time. Attempting to return the way they had come the previous afternoon, the men made a mistake and ended up in a gorge, and they had to backtrack back to the side of the bivouac. As they were doing this, one of the officers, a man named Major Sato, said that he had figured out where they were and that he now knew the path to Tashiro Onsen. So, without consulting the other officers, a battalion commander named Yamaguchi ordered Sato to lead the way to Tashiro. Unfortunately, Sato was mistaken, and the path he thought was the route to Tashiro was simply a path down to the nearby river. At this point, the entire group was completely exhausted and order began to break down, 
as the 210 men were growing nearer and nearer to calamity. With a bone-tired, freezing group of men attempting to retrace their path in the early morning of January 24th, during a blizzard, they soon found that their tracks were completely erased by the elements. As they attempted to climb up the steep banks of the river in deep snow, the first death happened. Lieutenant Mizuno Tadayoshi fainted and froze to death. Eventually, the men were able to climb up out of the river gorge and up to higher ground. However, weather up on the higher ground was absolutely punishing. Winds were gusting upwards of an estimated 100 kilometers an hour. The temperature was probably somewhere between minus 20 and minus 25 degrees Celsius. In the deeper spots, snow drifts were likely between 6 and 9 meters. As the men wandered about, nearly a quarter of them died from exposure to these brutal elements. Hardest hit by all the conditions were the men who had been forced to carry all the supplies that had been in the sleds. Even though they had been moving for close to 14 hours when they stopped to make bivouac the second time, they were only 700 meters away from the site of their first bivouac. In good conditions, that's a 10-minute walk, even in snow. At the second bivouac, the men had no tools to dig the trenches. The men carrying those tools had largely fallen behind and were probably dead at this point from exposure to the elements. So without trenches and most of their tools, the winds were howling. Wait, so you you said probably dead, as in we haven't found their dead bodies yet? Well, I'm saying probably dead, as in the men in the group didn't know for sure that they were dead, but they were probably pretty sure they were dead. I mean, yes, we know today, 120 years later, that these men were dead. I mean, definitely dead. But the men in the party didn't know they were definitely dead yet. Okay, so they, they already don't have hope then. Oh, those people, they're gone. They're probably dead. Well, like I said, they, I mean, they've already seen their first death. The uh, right. uh, Lieutenant Mizuno freezing to death by the uh, banks of the river. and uh, Day two. Wow, okay. Yeah, day, t- <laughs> day two. Like I say, nearly a quarter of the men, I mean, at least a quarter of the men, probably died on the second day as they were wandering, trying to find their way back. And many of the people who fell uh, felt, many of people, and many of the people who died fell behind and many of the people who fell and behind and died were people who were carrying the supplies because well that's extra weight makes it a lot harder to hike in the snow so now they don't have tools to dig their trenches at the bivouac without trenches and most of their tools and the winds howling fires were not going to happen making warming the rations for the men impossible And with the bitter cold, likely 40 degrees or more below zero. And 40 degrees, that's the point where Celsius and Fahrenheit are the same. So this is really cold. So with temperatures at minus 40, maybe even minus 50 degrees, the food was mostly frozen solid, making it impossible to eat. With the lack of sleep or even rest, coupled with the lack of food and the absolutely inhospitable weather, the second bivouac became the site of the majority of deaths in this disaster. I haven't been able to find a definite number, but I have seen a map that shows where the men marched and where the bodies were found. And the area around the second bivouac is just littered with dots, indicating a huge number of fallen men. And you can just see how on the second day they were wandering almost in a big circle. The same evening, Back in the village, where the locals had volunteered to act as guides, a group of 40 other men, men who had traveled with the larger group as far as the village on the outskirts of Almori City, waited for the return of their fellow soldiers. And back at the base in Almori City, a farewell party was being held for an officer who was being transferred to the Hirosaki base, home of the group that was making the 200-kilometer trek through the snow. Some of the people at the party voiced the thought that it would be wonderful for the men to return from the Hakoda Mountains directly to a party. But of course, as we know, the men were not going to make that party. They were freezing to death out in the elements. By the third day, the 25th of January, things were descending into an absolute hell for the men. The compass was frozen. And it wouldn't work. Can it? 
how does a compass freeze? As in, like, the metal froze together? Yeah, see, I was unable to figure out exactly how that worked. I'm wondering if maybe some like, some, some water got into it and froze inside the compass or something. Because, I mean, my guess is, too, that, I mean, this is 1902. So the uh, the even the best quality compasses probably weren't as high quality as they might have been in 1950, 1980, 2000. I mean, so probably it was, yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly how it was that, I mean, what, what I was reading said that the compass froze. Interesting. They're made to not do that. So that gives you an image of how cold it must have been. Yeah. And to remember that it was like minus 40, possibly minus 50 degrees that second day. So, uh, so yeah, something happened with the compass and they couldn't get the compass to work anymore. So yeah, at this point, report starts to get a little bit conflicting. Some reports claim that the commanding officer, Khan Nadi, at this point told the men that they were no longer bound as a unit. It was now every man for himself, and they were told to find their way back to Almori or on the way to Tashiro Onsen on their own. Khan Nadi is reported to have said at this point, The heavens have abandoned us. It is worth noting that at least one of the survivors, and there were survivors, at least one of these survivors disputed the reports of, of the dissolution of the unit in the midst of the catastrophe. But what does appear clear is that at this point, the men were beginning to succumb to madness, possibly due to the removal of the structure provided by the idea of being an army unit, if those reports are correct. But anyway, reports state that this was the point when some of the soldiers began undressing, something that happens in severe hypothermia cases. Paradoxical undressing, it's called. It happened in the Dyatlov Pass incident I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Other soldiers said things like, Almori is just over the edge of this cliff, or we can make a raft and ride it down the river back to Almori City. And even if they weren't beginning to go mad, the cold was causing them to die horrible, horrible deaths. Some of them couldn't work the buttons on their uniforms and urinated in their trousers, which led to their freezing to death. Around 2 p.m., On this day, some soldiers stumbled upon a small hut used for making charcoal. Now, I should point out that this area, a lot of charcoal making is happening. I think a lot of the woods in Japan, this is pretty common at this time. So people would cut trees, take them to these small charcoal making huts, and turn the wood into charcoal for cooking. So at 2 p.m., some soldiers found one of these charcoal huts and huddled inside and lit a small fire to warm up. However, Due to extreme fatigue, they were having a very difficult time staying awake to tend the fire. And to make sure that it didn't start a conflagration in the hut, they extinguished the fire early the next morning. It was also around this time that Yamaguchi, the officer who had decided to push on for Tashiro on day two, he slipped into unconsciousness. And though I have to say that at this point, things are getting a bit disorganized in the timeline, and... There will be some jumping around in the day as different groups of men are doing different things and heading different directions. So, But just know that all of this stuff is happening on day three. So with that in mind, earlier in the day, let's jump back a little bit. Earlier in the day, the weather had improved considerably, enough so that around 7 a.m., two parties were formed. One of six men, one of seven. And these two groups were organized to search for the routes towards Almori or on towards Tashiro Onsen. Things seemed to be going well for at least some of the men, and for some of them, a some sense of order was being temporarily restored. But around 10 a.m., men in one of these groups thought that he could see a line of men marching towards them, and thought it was a rescue party that had been sent to found them. Captain Kuraishi, one of the men in the reconnoitering parties, raised the bugle to his lips to signal to the rescue party only to have the bugle freeze to his lips. And he didn't even have the strength to make the sound on the bugle anyway. Yeah, um, again, and and this is something to remember that, okay, so so I used to play the trumpet, and this is a legitimate concern in very cold weather. And so the mouthpiece is metal for a trumpet or a bugle. And just like the condensation from your breath can freeze the mouthpiece to your face if you're not careful. It's like that scene in Dumb and Dumber where they lick the metal pole and his tongue gets stuck. That childhood fear. Yeah, or um, or a Christmas story. Same thing happens. Yeah, yeah, but a whole bugle. And then, because it froze to his lips, 
he couldn't make a sound or he had like not enough air or energy. So now he just has a frozen bugle yeah. stuck to his face. He seems to have gotten it off after a little bit, but initially it did freeze to his lips. And this is why in modern times, if people are going to be playing their trumpets outside in cold, cold weather, so that they make these plastic mouthpieces so you don't have to worry about this kind of thing. All right. I mean, and I did have a plastic mouthpiece back when I played trumpet. I didn't have to use it very often, but I did have one. So, yeah, so Kurishi tried to play the bugle. It froze to his lips, but he couldn't even he couldn't even make a sound because he was so weak and he had a bugle stuck to his face now. The men waited for the rescue party for nearly an hour before noticing that the supposed rescuers weren't moving at all and realizing that what they were seeing was merely a line of trees off in the distance. By around 11:30, the reconnoitering parties had returned to the main group which only numbered around 60 or 70 men at this point. The group that had searched for the route back towards Almorti had, in fact, found the route, and by noon, the greatly diminished group was heading back towards Almorti City. Around 5 p.m., it was getting too dark to continue. Now, the men, in this case, they're in a small valley, meaning that daylight ended for them fairly early. More and more men were disappearing from the group, likely overcome by exhaustion, collapsing in the snow. The medical team was also exhausted. They had been tasked with trying to care for dozens and dozens of frostbitten, delirious soldiers, and they themselves were now falling from the exhaustion and cold. It was at this point that any last semblance of order was completely lost. So Kudaishi, the man who didn't have enough energy to sound the bugle, he attempted to issue an order to establish a bivouac for the night, but the men just wouldn't obey, and no one assembled. Eventually, after some time, some of the men did assemble, and what happened next is not exactly settled. So whether a decision was made by the commanders to do so, or whether this was done by the men acting on their own volition, there was a split between going towards Tashiro, which the men knew was fairly close. They knew they were close to Tashiro, but they weren't sure how close. So there was a split. Should we go back towards Tashiro, or should we go towards Aomori, try to get home? Now, like I said, there are some discrepancies in the accounts, and the timeline gets a little wonky on day three. Is this last bit about, you know, going towards Tashiro Aomori, is this the dissolution of the unit by Kanari, or did that happen earlier? I can't really tell exactly. The details are all in Japanese, so I'm doing this in translation, and they're not exactly written chronologically, and there's no timestamps, anything like that. But just basically know that things just absolutely went to hell on day three. Now, on day three, back at the Almori base, with no sign of the men, the commanders thought that it might have been possible that they had changed plans, and rather than return to Almori after marching to Tashiro, perhaps the group had marched down the other side of the mountains, down to a village called Sambongi. The commander sent a telegraph to the head of the police in Sambongi to see if they knew anything, but they couldn't confirm the whereabouts of the 210 men. And it was then uh, that they decided that a rescue party would be sent out the next day to look for the missing men. Now I think in like today's modern sensibilities, I mean, we think that, okay, okay, this large military group was supposed to be back on day two. It's the end of day three. They're not back. Something probably should have been done earlier. But again, like I say, it's 1902. Communication is a lot slower. So waiting the extra day doesn't seem that strange to me. And so here we are, end of day three, which is where everything went absolutely to hell. And they're down to fewer than a third of the men left. And quickly using up their luck. So the party caught up. That was a good stroke of luck. A little bit of the party found the route back to Aomori. Mm -hmm. And their luck is probably going to run out. For most of them, yes. For most of them, yes. The 26th of January, the fourth day of the ordeal, was relatively uneventful for the remaining men. In their third bivouac site, the commanders and a dozen or so relatively healthy men, and I really, really stress that word, relatively. No one's very healthy. These are the men who are relatively healthy compared to the, their comrades. So the commanders and a dozen or so relatively healthy men had a meeting and decided to wait until dawn before setting off in the direction of Almori City. On day four, the weather was fairly clear and calm. Uh, 
and things were seemingly going as well as could possibly be expected under the circumstances. Several of the men who had fallen unconscious the previous evening managed to survive the night and even woke up the following morning. The 30 or so remaining men were able to see each other clearly as they trudged through the deep snow in small groups, making slow progress. Some of them were also tasked with carrying the unconscious Yamaguchi. Despite the favorable conditions, the men's state of starvation, the exhaustion and frostbite, made for very, very slow going, though they did manage to regroup with another small bunch of survivors who had been separated earlier. By the end of the day, they had covered the distance of a couple of kilometers, a distance that, under normal circumstances, even in these weather conditions, would have taken two hours or less. This was also the day, though, that the rescue party set out from the Aomori base, and this was a group of 60 soldiers. However, due to some delays in getting started, because it took time for their guide to procure the necessary supplies, and also due to the weather conditions beginning to change, they were unable to make much progress that day. On January 27th, the fifth day, the men decided to split into two groups for reasons that I cannot quite fathom. Both groups were still trying to find their way back to Aomori, but one group was going to try to retrace the route they'd come up on the first day, while the other group was going to attempt to follow the nearby uh, Komagome River back to Aomori. The first group, which was led by Kanari, while they were more or less on the correct path, they were met with blizzard conditions again. And men, of course, began dropping off the back and dying in the snow. Soon, only four men were left. The commander, Kanari, after he collapsed, ordered a man named Corporal Goto Fusanosuke to push ahead to the nearest village to raise the alarm and try to get help. Now the second group, the ones attempting to follow the river, were led by Kudaishi, the man who couldn't muster the strength to sound the bugle when it froze to his lips. They made their way to the river, but they were confronted by a steep cliff. One man stripped naked and dove into the river off the cliff. Again, this paradoxical undressing. Wow, that's one big going out, one last dive. Apparently, yeah. And that man's body was later found downstream in early March. Back in the first group, Corporal Goto, the man that Kanari had tasked with going for help, managed to push on for more than a kilometer in the deep, deep snow along the route back to the village. And the rescue party had been starting from that village that same day. And finally, something good happened. The rescue party found Goto Fusanosuke and now knew for certain that the 210 men who had set out from Aomori on the 23rd had indeed met a great calamity. There are different accounts of exactly what state Goto was in when the rescue party found him, but he was still alive. And he would be one of the few to survive the ordeal. When he was revived and able to communicate, he managed to utter the words, Captain Kanari, to his rescuers, who proceeded to search for the captain, only to find him buried in the snow, nearly frozen. The medics in the rescue team tried to revive him, but his skin had frozen solid, and they couldn't inject him with the medicine. So they had to pry open his mouth to administer the medicine inside his mouth, in an attempt to revive him. But it was to no avail. Kanari died in the snow, along with one other man, a soldier named Oikawa. Unable to carry the two bodies, the rescue team marked the spot so as to be able to retrieve the two fallen soldiers at a later time. They carried Goto and one of the members of the rescue team who had developed severe frostbite back to the village they had begun the day in. From here, word was sent back to the base in Aomori City. At 7.40 in the evening, the colonel in command, a man named Sugawa Yasuteru, was informed of the discovery of, Cop- of Corporal Goto. He was also informed of the complete devastation of the entire unit and the state of the rescue team. Nearly half of them, half of the rescue team, were suffering from frostbite already. Tsugawa was shocked by the report, having assumed that the team had reached Tashiro Onsen. The next day, the 28th of January, the sixth day for the men, Kureishi's group, which included Yamaguchi, who by this point was conscious again, 
had made it down to the river. Unfortunately, more of the men were going mad with the extremity of the situation. Another soldier jumped into the river. As Kodishi would later state, his whereabouts are unknown. At this point, Kudaishi and several men holed up in a small cave in the cliffside. He attempted to convince Yamaguchi to join him in the cave, but Yamaguchi refused and said, This is where I die. January 28th was also the day that the men from Hirosaki, making their trek through the Hakoda Mountains in the opposite direction, passed through, having set up their bivouac at Tashiro Onsen the night before, the very location the Aomori men were trying to reach at first. While there is no definitive evidence that I've been able to find, there is some belief that the Hirosaki men saw signs of disaster that had befallen their Aomori comrades. Again, this is the mountains, this is blizzard conditions, it's very possible they saw nothing because everything got obliterated by wind and snow. The next few days have only a few events in the official reports. On the 29th, so day 7, the Hirosaki men, who had been marching without stop since leaving Tashiro Onsen, arrived at the village where the rescue team was operating. They arrived very early in the morning and left for Aomori City at 4.20 in the morning, so they very likely didn't even meet the rescue team. They arrived in central Aomori about three hours later. Apparently unaware of the details of what had and what was happening to the men from Aomori. Of those Aomori men on the 29th, Captain Kanari and Corporal Oikawa's bodies were recovered by the rescue team. On the 30th, now more than a week since it all began, the rescue party discovered 36 bodies at the site of the Fourth Knight's disorganized bivouac, a location called Sainokawara, which is the name in Buddhism for the children's limbo or purgatory. The name is grimly apropos as it supposedly came from the fact that the area was known to be the site of many deaths due to freezing in the winter mountains. On the 31st, the rescue party happened across a charcoal-making hut and saw signs of human activity. When the rescue party opened the door, they found two men alive, and one more who had recently frozen to death. Nearby were dozens of fallen soldiers frozen to death. Of the two survivors the rescue team found, one would later die in hospital a month and a half later. Wow, but a month and a half, he sure he, he sure fought for a while, though. I'm sure he had, like, severe damage sure. or, like, uh, frostbite. Oh, yeah. We'll get into what happened to some of the survivors in a bit. That same day, the rescue team found Kudaishi and the survivors who made it to the river. In all, it's either nine or ten. The, the wording isn't very clear. Either nine or ten men were alive when the rescue party found them, including Yamaguchi. Of these nine or ten, three would die a short time later, including Yamaguchi, who died on February 2nd. And we'll come back to him in just a few minutes. It was also on this day that the Hirosaki men completed their 224-kilometer trek through the Hakoda Mountains in the depths of winter, making the Aomori training mission all that much worse. There was basically no reason for them to do this mission, which meant there was no reason for these men to die. Another team, seemingly better prepared and less unlucky, completed their mission, showing that passing through the Hakoda Mountains in winter was possible. On the 1st of February, no survivors were found, only dead bodies. The final day of the rescue operation was the 2nd of February. The rescue party found yet another charcoal-making hut, this time with four survivors. Apparently there had been eight, but three of the men who were in relatively good shape at some point had decided they could no longer wait and tried their luck trying to make their way back to Aomori. They all died in the snow. One more of the original eight there was a medic, and he heard the voices of someone crying out for help nearby, and he went out and tried to perform his duty as a medical officer, but he never returned, leaving these four men the rescue team found. Unfortunately, two of these men also died later in hospital. Later that same day, around 3 p.m., one final survivor was located in a hut in Tashiro Onsen. Muromatsu Fumitoshi. At least that's my best guess as how to read his name. The Muromatsu part is not in question, 
but the given name could be read a few different ways and I can't find anything showing the proper reading online. But yeah, Corporal Muramatsu Fumitoshi was found lying on the ground in a hut at the Tashiro Onsen. He and several other men had gone off on their own on the 25th, when Kanari may or may have not dissolved the unit. Muramatsu and the others had intended to head towards Aomori, but had gotten confused in the snow and ended up at Tashiro Onsen by accident. On the 26th, Muramatsu and one other had found the hut at Tashiro and were able to get out of the elements, but they had no matches and were unable to start a fire. The other man, uh, Private First Class Furudate, died on the 27th, leaving Muramatsu alone for nearly a week. And that is just an unimaginable thing to me. Just think how lonely and absolutely horrible that must have been, waiting for death, essentially. But Muramatsu did not die. He was able to find water coming from the hot spring and was able to drink enough to stay alive. And presumably, as it was a hot spring, he probably stayed a little bit warmer than if he had been somewhere else. On the 30th, he was no longer able to stand upright and survive nearly four days lying on the ground, eating the snow that he could reach just by moving his head around until the rescue team found him. While he did lose all four limbs, he miraculously survived and made as much of a recovery as is possible given his situation. After finding Mudamatsu, the rescue attempt was over. While men continued searching for several months, it was no longer a rescue mission, but now a mission of retrieval of the fallen. A total of 17 men were found alive by the rescue party, but six of those men would die from complications within two months of being rescued. One of those found alive only to die in hospital was Commander Yamaguchi. The official cause of death was a heart attack. Yamaguchi, who came from a well-connected family, was reported to have had a weak heart. This is well before the whole incident, so it is not unreasonable that he might have died from heart failure or heart attack less than 24 hours after being admitted to the hospital. However, at the time, there were rumors that he had been assassinated. Okay, assassination, what? Yep, there were assassination rumors supposedly to cover up any failings of the army in the lead-up to war with Russia. Some of the rumors said that he was shot. Other rumors said he was poisoned with chloroform. There is no reason to believe the rumors are true, as they were all born out of wild speculation. While it is possible, though unlikely, he might have died due to a medical mishap with chloroform, but it's more likely that he died from some sort of heart attack or heart failure, After all, there were other members of the party who died from that same cause. So Occam's razor leads us to the conclusion that, yeah, this guy who didn't have the best of hearts before this ordeal died of a heart problem after more than 10 days in some of the most brutal conditions imaginable. It's most likely that he died of a heart attack or something similar. When all was said and done, 199 men had died either out in the elements, 193 men, or in hospital from complications with, within two months, another six. This 199 made the Hakoda Mountain incident the deadliest mountain climbing accident in modern history. As I said, the recovery mission would go on for months and would include a well-known Ainu leader, a man named Benkai Takajiro. Now, the Ainu are an indigenous people of Hokkaido, and Benkai brought his tracking dogs which proved to be very effective in finding the bodies of the fallen men. It wasn't until the 28th of May that year that the final body was recovered. But all the bodies were recovered. Wow. All of this leaves us with a question. Why did the Aomori expedition fail so completely, where the Hirosaki mission was a complete success? There are multiple theories, weather, lack of proper equipment, poor leadership, as well as lack of information, understanding of the mountains, all of these probably played some role. The weather. While the Hirosaki men were in the same mountains, it might have been the case that at the times and places they were, they were met with better, more hospitable weather conditions. The weather in the mountains can change very quickly, and with as many gorges and valleys as there are in the Hakoda Mountains, it's entirely possible that the two units were experiencing very different weather conditions. 
and also size maybe too i it it seems like one of the the downfalls of the group is that there are so many people fighting to do their own way like let's do this let's do this they broke off three or four different times into smaller groups absolutely that that is absolutely another factor that that i and i will get to this in a little bit but uh yeah the other causes are much more damning all the lack of things that these are things that could have been averted the men from hirosaki employed local guides to help them they knew what shoes what socks they needed to wear and ways to ward off the cold the guides knew the land well enough that they were able to find Tashiro Onsen, even in adverse weather conditions, after the troops made a short stop in a bivouac. The commander of the Hirosaki mission was also well-versed in snow maneuvers, having taken part in snow exercises on Mount Iwaki the previous two years. The Aomori group didn't seem to have anyone with this kind of knowledge in their leadership. After all, the Aomori group refused the help of locals who offered to guide them on the first day. And one more factor, the one that you just talked about, is the composition of the unit, as well as its size. 37 Hirosaki men plus one badass reporter versus 210 from Aomori. On top of that, the majority of the Hirosaki group was made up of men from Aomori Prefecture. They were more familiar with the terrain and the type of snow to expect in the mountains. As I said earlier, the Aomori group was largely made of men from other parts of Tohoku, still snowy places, but not to the extent as Aomori, and not the same type of snow. All these factors probably played a role in making the Aomori group's mission the calamity it was, while making the Hirosaki group's mission a success. As I said, the Hirosaki group, one man stopped early and presumably stayed in a village or something, and then eventually returned back to base. The other 37 men made it through with no major injuries. And no deaths? No deaths. Of the 38, all 38 survived. One didn't make the full loop. The other 37 did make that full loop, and the one went back. Uh, he went back after getting injured. And do you want to know the absolute worst part of it all? So not the deaths or the bad luck or freezing temperatures, frozen bodies, naked swimming. I mean, yeah, all of those are bad, but there's something that makes them all that much worse. That bivouac on the first night. It was only 1.5 kilometers, less than a mile from Tashiro Onsen. Wow, so without snowy conditions, I mean, an hour walk maybe. I mean, without snowy conditions, that, that's, that's probably less than an hour. I mean, in snowy conditions, if they know what they're doing, that's probably an hour. All right, right. I mean, that, that, that's a mile. Right? So, like, tra trekking through, I mean, because the mountains are very hilly and lots of dirt and no trail. So, I was thinking, okay, maybe in, like, good conditions, an hour. I mean, right. But remember that Tashiro is an established place there is that's true so so there's going to be a path to it i mean it's not a big paved road but there is a path to tashiro onsen they're going to a known place that's i mean so maybe it's not the greatest conditions but it's not that far of a walk i mean in summer conditions it's probably 15 minutes yeah yeah but even in winter conditions if they had known what they were doing and if they hadn't gotten lost slowed down maybe an hour if you look at a map of all the places the men from Aomori established their bivouacs, they're all just a few hundred meters apart from each other. And if you drive the road today, you'll find there's a statue to Corporal Goto on the spot where they found him. So there's this statue along the road, and there are signs where all the camps were set up. I mean, if you're in your, if you're in your car, you can literally drive just between the spots in a couple minutes. And a lot more comfortable. And of course, you're a lot more comfortable. Uh, but yeah, that first day, they had almost made it to their destination and probably would have if they had employed a local guide who knew how to get to Tashiro even in the snow. And that is the story of the Hakoda Mountains incident. Wow. So there's a little piece of history that you probably never needed to know about, but now you do. Yeah. But it's really nice uh, hearing about different stories of places that you've actually been. So I really recommend to the listeners, if they have a chance, if they're in Japan or can come to Japan after all of this coronavirus stuff is over, actually visiting these sites. It's really amazing. 
And so next time, if you're up in Aomori, take that prefectural highway 40 between Aomori and a little bit outside of Hachinohe so you can retrace the route of the worst mountaineering disaster in modern history. Thank you. So thank you very much for joining me, Colleen. Yeah, that was, it was interesting. And we'll end it there. So please remember to subscribe, rate, review, share, sneak onto a friend's phone or computer, download it for them, subscribe for them, whatever it is you can do to help the podcast out. You can find the Twitter for this podcast at Just Another Cast. You can email questions, comments, suggestions to JustAnotherJerkPodcast at gmail.com. So on that note, we're done.